Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach. With me today, I have someone who, uh, well, he's going to talk about what it means to speak naked. He's might even talk about uh, how much fun it was to fall off a building. And um, there's a potential that we'll discuss what happened that he got a, a puck to the throat. Um, let, <laughs> let's explore. Let's explore all of that. Uh, Tyler, Tyler Foley has joined me. Uh, author, speaker, speaker, coach, amazing human. Welcome, Tyler. Oh, it's a joy and a pleasure to be here, Dr. P. <laughs> so, so let's talk about um, a lot of people have a message um, and they don't consider themselves speakers. Mm-hmm. And and yet, if you're meeting someone, you're a speaker, right? I mean, if you're just even networking, just even saying hello to somebody that makes you that puts you in a place of you have a message, which may just be, hello, I'm here to lift you up. Um, what, talk a little bit, let's do this. Talk a little bit about what you're doing now. We will rewind the clock a little bit and talk about how you got here. And then uh, we'll leap forward and, and discuss a little bit about uh, what's going on and, and where you're headed. Yeah, that, and where I'm headed will be a very interesting conversation. Um, awesome. What I'm doing now is showing people the power of their story, how to find that story, how to tell it effectively, and uh, let them understand, as you said, that they do actually have a message. There's this, I believe, mistaken concept that in order to be a public speaker, you need to have this stage with this massive audience of 10 or 20,000 people. And the reality is that, as you had mentioned, any interaction you have where you're conveying a message is public speaking. And there's also this hidden uh, and mistaken notion that most people are afraid of public speaking. And the reality is, if that were the case, commerce as we know it would collapse. We wouldn't be able to have conversations outside of our house. Um, Anybody who's ever been to a restaurant who's ordered food has spoken in public. And if you didn't know your waitstaff, you spoke to a complete stranger. And if you got the food that you requested, you were able to ask for what you want and get it. So this notion that we're afraid to speak in public, we're afraid to speak to strangers, Uh, We're afraid to ask for what we want is all null and void if you've ever been to a restaurant and gotten your food. So I'm trying to show people one at a time, 10 at a time, 20 at a time, a thousand at a time that uh, you do have a story to tell. And uh, anytime you are speaking to more than two people, you have uh, a group. And even if it's just a one-on-one interaction, you still have an audience. I love that you start with uh, dispelling the myths, you know, it's like, oh, I have asked for what I've wanted. I actually got what I wanted. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I spoke to a stranger to get it. It's fabulous, right? It's a it's a great place to start. Um, so these days you are you are not only speaking, you're a speaker, and mm-hmm. you talk about uh, like you throw comedy through your through your speeches. Um, and the title of your book, um, "How to Speak Naked," is that you want to hold that the, up? Yeah, the power to speak naked. The uh, power to speak naked. Yes. With with an, an excellent body double for me. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, that guy works out a lot more than I do. But I would say, you know, a reasonable Andron facsimile of Tyler. Very good. Very good. So the power to speak naked, uh, you, you talk about um, it's ridiculous to try and visualize your audience naked. That's... Mm-hmm. That was an old myth about um, it'll put you at so much ease if you picture them at a disadvantage or if you laugh about who they are. Um, yeah, and it is a complete fallacy and myth. Um, and and in fact, a, a fairly dangerous exercise because, and I think, and you had alluded to it, um, that there's somehow that we were supposed to gain confidence or power uh, through somebody else's discomfort or exactly. unease. And I think uh, not only is it masochistic, but it's a complete waste of brain power, given that your audience is a sacred gift and should be treated as such. And your job as a speaker is to leave them better than you found them. And, and that can be in any interaction. That could be saying hello to a friend, as you had pointed out, that could be um, presenting an update or, or anything of that nature in a boardroom. Um, even providing commentary when somebody asks, do you have any questions? Uh, you are still participating within that audience and your job as a speaker in any context is to leave your audience better than you found them. So this notion that somehow picturing your audience naked um and to uh an extent of that in a state of distress is uh a an unnecessary brain exercise that is taking away valuable neurons that could be yes. put to better use but not only that it's it's highly disrespectful for what should be treated as your most sacred and precious gift especially as a speaker, if you have been granted the, the joy that is an audience, uh, you need to treat them with care and respect. And uh, so I definitely <laughs> like to dispel that if that, a, uh, picturing your audience naked is the thing to do. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> And I'm not, yeah, I, 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 there's so many things that as a speaker, I've, uh, I've discovered that were just plain wrong, just wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. the way things like, I, you know, my, my speaking training, the early days was watching speakers in the seventies, becoming a speaker in the eighties. And so this is like, you know, I, I have maybe a few years on you. Um, 
to be fair, I have been public speaking since 1986. So, oh, well done. Uh, that's you know, awesome. I, As a fetus, I, that's amazing. <laughs> that, that's right. At, at the ripe age of six was the first time I was ever on stage, and I've wow. been doing it professionally ever since. So That's fabulous. Okay. Good for you. Well, you know, there were so many, um, there was so much posturing on stage back then. You know, it's like yeah. men had to be in suits and women had to be perfectly quaffed. And you yes. you must tell your story with such... Except for Suzanne Powers. She got away with doing it in a tracksuit, but that was based on what she was selling. Right. Right. I know. Hey, see, I just dated myself. You're like, Suzanne Powers. Now, that is a dig from the 80s. It, it, it totally is. It's uh, <laughs> awesome. Even though she had, I was just saying, women had their hair perfectly quaffed. Like mm. there was a, and there was a posture and a vocal uh, tone and a cadence. Mm. And you would use this cadence and then you'd speed up and be very powerful. And then you'd get back to being. And it's, um, I love where we've come as speakers that we are, we get to be genuine humans. Yeah, and we get to, um, you know, uh, we get to bring a message that's important. I yeah. I am going to guess that the power to speak naked addresses the fact that our message is more important than we are, and yes, that, and that we can show up vulnerably real as speakers with the idea that um, the audience is a gift. And our message is our gift to them. And and truly the essence of why it's called the power to speak naked. Obviously, it's a, a, a bit of tongue in cheek jest at picturing your audience naked. Yes. But at its core, um, not only do I want the audience to be able to give a, a raw and naked presentation in that they don't need the the PowerPoint, they don't need the lasers, the DJ that they don't even really need a PA system. Even in a large venue, I had the joy of being on stage in Dallas this past May. And um, we, I was uh, sharing a stage with some of the best speakers in the, in the business. Um, Phil town, Tony Robbins was the headliner. Um, the in amazing molly bloom and uh bob cattell was our host and uh we were in this uh, probably about a ten thousand seat arena i think there were six thousand people in the audience and the pa system uh died because the power source that they were plugged into was underpowered for the amount of uh juice that we were drawing and Bob who is, you know, the most incomparable professional, like the man is uh, a joy and a pleasure to watch. I learned so much every time I get to see him literally went out, no PA, no anything. And as a, a trained school teacher and former thespian uh, just went on stage and was like, Okay, everybody, can you hear me? And they were like, yes. He's like, good. See, I don't need all of this stuff. And I was like, it's from my book. Yes. And <laughs> uh, awesome. 
uh, I mean, it's obviously his own material, but I was like, I say that, I say that. And, and it's true. You don't need all of these things. What you need is your story and your understanding that your story has the ability to change someone else's life for the better. And if you can present that in a naked fashion, raw, um, vulnerable, expose yourself to some harsh criticisms and be prepared to defend them through the power of your story so that somebody can see the world through your eyes, through your point of view. That's when you have the ability to have real and true impact. Love that. Allow the world to see the, to allow, allow your audience to see the world through your eyes, through your story. Um, how, how do people, you and I have, uh, have certain circles that are very much in common, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and I'll mention them, Roger Love, Bo Eason, right? So, yeah. you know, Bo talks about uh, stories, obviously he, he, that's a lot of the work he did after he left professional football. Yeah. How you do work with people to help them find their story, right? People will come to you and say, Tyler, my life's like boring. I've got nothing to share. How Mm -hmm. am I going to leave an audience better than I found them? Where do I, you know, I'm not a storyteller, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, you've heard it all. Um, how do you help people overcome the kind of negative self-talk that they've given themselves for decades? Well, one of the first things we do is explore that they do have a story. And the nice thing is, is this is an exercise that can be done in two minutes. Mm. And so we might as well do it right now for your listeners. I would love that. And please, what I would love them to do if, uh, if math is difficult, we're going to do, you know, fourth grade math here. Um, if it's difficult for you, hit pause, grab a calculator, grab a pencil, grab a piece of paper. If you can do this in your head, which most people will be able to, uh, good. This is just a quick exercise. The first thing I want you to do is take your age, however old you are, and round to the nearest five. Once you've done that, I want you to take that number. And I want you to divide it by five. And now you will have five even time periods of a certain number, age or epoch. And I want you to look at what you have as far as those age groups go. Uh, So if I was to do this exercise, I'm 43 years old, I would round to 45, divide by five and get five even time periods of nine. Now, Dr. P. I know the people who listen to you, and I know that we do have a couple of A-type personalities who are very particular, who are like, yes, but that is not even time periods for me. My age is X, and now I've added or subtracted from it. So for those people who need to be exact, if you had, if you want to be exact and, and be perfect with your time periods, if you rounded up for your age. It was either one or two that you had to round up by. Deduct that number that you rounded up by from your last time period. 
And if you had to round down, it was either one or two. Add that to your first time period. So for me, I have these even time periods of nine, uh, but I had to round up to get there. So from my last time period, I would deduct two and I would have my last time period is just seven years. And the reason we do this is just simply to divide your age into, into time periods that you can look back and reflect on. And the reason we add to the beginning and subtract from the end is you probably don't remember the first 12 to 24 months of your life. So we're just giving you a little bit of buffer there. And your most recent time period is probably going to be your most vivid, the one that you have the most memories from. So we'll just subtract a little bit from that and it tends to balance out the playing field. Now what I want you to do, and again, this is we're still within our two minutes and we've done the math. I want you to look at each one of those time periods, zero to nine for me, then 10 to 18, then 19 to 27, whatever yours happen to be. I want you to look at your five even time periods and I want you to ask yourself, what is the most significant or vivid memory that I have from this time period? What, when I think of myself in this first time period, what is the first memory that comes to mind. And it needs to be the first one, not the one that when I search and I'm looking for meaning or significance, or I really want to dig deep. No, I mean, when I say, Hey, Dr. P between one and nine, what's the first memory that you have? What's the one that pops out? That's the one I want you to focus on. And then again, for time period two, three, four, and five. Once you've done this, you should have five memories. If you have more, that's great, but I want you to just focus on those first five. And in doing so, this is the exercise that takes longer. So we've now discovered that we do have these memories. But what I want you to do is ask yourself now and explore why. Why was that memory so significant for you? Why is it that that is the one that pops to your mind when you think of yourself in that time period? Why is that the one that holds some form of power over your subconscious that it remains a conscious memory? Those are the, the stories that matter to you, which likely led to you becoming who you are. Once you've explored the why that's important, now you start to look at the lessons within there. Who were you prior to that? Who were you after that? Was there a significant shift or was there not a significant shift? What did you need to know going into that event? What didn't you need to know? What did you learn? What did you wish you had learned? What did you wish you had known prior? All of these things will inform the details of your story. All of these things will inform who that person that needs to hear that story is, because ultimately you want to speak to somebody who experienced something similar. One other note with these memories, they don't have to be these vivid pictures. They don't have to be a Michael Bay Hollywood blockbuster with explosions that go off and transformers flipping over cars. You just want the thing that's significant to you. It could be a sound. It could be a color could be a smell. Um, 
all of these things, uh, it could be, it could be a very vivid picturesque thing. It could be a hazy, fuzzy thing, but it's the one that stands out the most. And then we want to explore the essence of that. And then the, the fun part comes in, in the telling it. And as you had mentioned, Bo Eason, uh, taught this to me and it, it's something that has resonated with me ever since the more specific you can make the details, the more universal that story will speak to your audience because it allows them to experience the world through your eyes. They say, never judge a person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. But the reality is physically, we can't actually do that. But metaphorically, I can walk a mile. I could walk your entire lifetime with you if you share the details with me in a way that I understand it. And it's the details that matter in the retelling. That's great. I, you know, my background is clinical psych. And I am going to encourage our audience as you're listening to this or watching this that you go back through what Tyler just said and truly, truly journal it, right? So <laughs> what time period are you selecting? And, um, you know, chunk it down or just await the first thing that jumps to you. I love that. What's the most significant or the first memory that pops up? Um, why do you think that was so significant? What were the lessons? What, who were you before and after? I love it. I was taking notes. So, uh, (laughs) that's awesome. What did you learn? What do you wish you knew going into it? And the reason I think this is so significant is that, um, it's a lot of like, this is the, if you wanted to coach yourself into your next time period. You look at all of that. Who are you? Who were you before this? Um, What is happening to you now? And what do you wish you knew prior to being here? And how are you going to get that knowledge moving forward? So this is, it's fabulous. What a great, what a great exercise. That's awesome. Really good. Well, And again, the, the power of, of this particular exercise is it dispels that myth that we don't have stories or that our life isn't significant or that our life doesn't matter either. Like that's, that can be one of the worst lies that we ever tell ourselves. And I think the, the real power, uh, in this is that again, people think it needs to be this, this, this Hollywood blockbuster that your life needs to be that. And the other problem where I find most of my clients get stuck is the comparison, right? Yeah. I am not Tony Robbins. Now, I was lucky in that I did have the opportunity to share a stage with him in that I was one of the first speakers in the morning and he was the last speaker in the evening. You know, I I, I didn't even get to share a, a green room with him because he has a separate green room when he right. speaks. So, but I, if I constantly compared myself to him, I would, I would never achieve the things that I need. Tony is not me and I am not Tony and never should I be, nor will I be. Right. Nor he, I am right. Yeah. Yeah. I am me and I need to be the best version of me, but there are people out there who can identify with my circumstances, with what I do. And that's, and, and this power doing this exercise really illuminates who your ideal audience is. 
because you want to be speaking to yourself five or 10 years ago. And if you can frame it that way, you know, what did you need to know? What do you wish somebody could have told you? Now go and tell yourself that. And that's where, again, those details start to come out because what did you need to know? What did you need to focus on? That's what your ideal audience is going to hear and pick up on. And it's amazing how you find that audience when you start authentically and uh, vibrantly sharing that information. And remember, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. Yes. The most authentic speakers are the ones who know themselves at their core and therefore are not shaken by challenges to their, to their uh, either viewpoint or their perception. Because they know who they are internally. And that's really the whole point of this exercise is get to know you. Introduce yourself to somebody you've known for a very long time. That's awesome. And explore the why. Yeah, you can't. uh, People can challenge you, but nobody can take away the you of you. And if it's your story, it's your story. And nobody knows it better than you. And nobody can tell it better than you. So do you picture this happening at, rather than on stage? Do you picture this happening at networking events um, where you're meeting people and, and trying to make a, a reasonable impression? And, and, yes. and if so, can you talk about how you, how you whip out your story? It's like, there I was in preschool and I had my favorite cup. It's like, you're not going to start there. Uh, <laughs> no, but so again, you're, when we're doing this exercise, you are going to have multiple stories that come out of this. Yeah. And uh, again, I've had the pleasure of working with some great names. Uh, so let's, let's drop the next one. Uh, when I was working with Les Brown, uh, one of the things that I learned from him, being, sharing a stage with him and watching him work, is that you never tell a story without a point and you never make a point without a story the story that you choose to use to highlight your point is entirely up to you, but you need to know which one is going to be effective in the sharing, right? When I say, when I tell a story about Bob Cattell speaking on stage because the power's gone out, the point is that you don't need the stage and the PowerPoint and, and the visuals. Are they there? Yes. Could they add uh, to your story or enhance what you're doing? Sometimes. Sometimes they can just be really, really distracting. It depends on how you use it. Mm. But the point was that you can, even in a large stadium, you technically don't need uh, all of that stuff. You just need you and the power of your voice and the power of story. Now, it helps when you have training, like that you can get from Roger Love uh, or Per Bristow or any other vocal coach so that you can project your voice. Yeah. Um, and, and Bob had that training, but the point is, is you can strip it down. So when you go to a networking event, yeah, you're not going to just jump out with your story. First of all, the real key to effective networking is uh, being the person in the room who talks the least. You want to be the person who's listening the most. Because A, that's going to inform the stories that you tell. And having done this exercise, you will know who your ideal audience is. So instead of telling your story and making it about you, which is very egocentric, one of the things that you need to know in telling an effective story, if you 
look at the uh, the hero's journey model that Joseph Campbell put together. The first couple of steps is that you have a hero who's in a state of unaware. Uh, their life is static. There's no change. And then there is an event, a trigger event that puts them in a state of distress or turmoil that begins their journey As and the sets them on a hero. path. Yeah. The, the reluctant hero till they find the reluctant the hero. And till they find the mentor or sage who then guides them through a series of trials and tribulations that allow them to gain the knowledge that they need to over to in the final chapter overcome the their nemesis and then begin their journey home. And when most people try to tell their story, they're trying to tell their story as though they're the hero. And that's where you lose an audience. The way to effectively tell your story is to remember that you are not Luke Skywalker, you are Obi-Wan Kenobi. And if I lost some of your audience with the Star Wars reference, you are not Harry Potter, uh, you are Dumbledore. And by the way, those are the exact same story. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are. A, a, a boy Han Solo, his, right? Yeah. Okay. A, a boy living with his aunt and uncle discovers that he is a Jedi, scratch, scratch, wizard. <laughs> exactly. And it just goes on from there. So when you want to tell your story effectively, understanding that you are the sage and the mentor, you don't need to tell about, um, about how you overcame a thing. What you need to do is talk to the struggle that this person is currently experiencing or is in a state of unaware, right? So when I go to a networking event, first of all, I'm, I'm spending most of my time listening because again, uh, you know, statistics show that 75% of people express anxiety around public speaking. Um, we've explored that the reality is what they're actually afraid of is public judgment, but we'll get to that later. Most people think that they are afraid of public speaking, but uh, studies show that only three to 6% of, of people will actually um, seek professional help to get better at it. Despite knowing that it has a negative, if you don't public speak, it has a negative impact on your earning potential and your leadership. If you do speak, it has uh, the inverse effect in that you can earn more, gain more leadership opportunities, have uh, better chances at promotions within your organization. And all of that will still, people won't seek professional help. So as a public speaking coach, if I go to a networking event with 50 people in the room, my potential clients, there is one to three <laughs> maximum, statistically speaking. And yet we know that three quarters of that room could possibly use my help. Easily. So I'm spending most of my time listening to what people do, where they're at in their journey. And everybody always gets that 30-second spot to be able to say, you know, what you do. Most people do it wrong. Because again, they're speaking about them and this is my service and everybody needs my thing. And on top of it, they waste their time saying their name too. Like if you only have 30 seconds saying, hi, my name is Tyler Foley and I am a public speaker coach that you've just killed five of your 30 seconds. <laughs> like stop doing it. Somebody has already said it and you have a name tag. So the, when I'm presented with that to give an example, 
I would say, who here hates coming to these networking events because you have no idea what to say? Or you don't think that the small talk is effective or you're having a hard time explaining what it is that you do. If you are an introvert like me and find these things ridiculously uncomfortable, I have a very easy five-step process to help you discover your story, find an easy way of speaking it with ease so that you can attract and gain more clients. That's something that interests you. Come find me. I'll be over in the corner. Otherwise, I would love to know what it is that you do and, and maybe see if there's anybody in my network that I can introduce you to. Under 30 seconds. Even if I'm given a minute, I'm only going to give that because that speaks to the pain point that I solved, means that I identify with it, and shows that I have a little bit of insight. And then they can be like, well, tell me more. And then when they want to know more, then I can tell them my story. Well, at six years old, I was the first time I was on stage. I've been performing since I was, you know, I've been performing for the better part of four decades now. And uh, frankly, I'm an introvert. I don't, as much as it looks like I have this outgoing personality, my comfort comes <laughs> by myself reading a book. So uh, if you know you identify with that, what I have put together will very likely help you because I've been there. And then I can be the sage and the mentor to those people. You are listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. Wayne Purnell. You know you are bigger than the life you are leading. It really is time to attend to that thing you've wanted to do or have, but you've been putting off. It's time to step into that dream you've parked for someday. It's time to claim true well-being, both personally and professionally, without giving up the success that got you here. It's time to check out Dr. Purnell's signature small group retreat, the Exponential Success Summit. Explore ExponentialSuccessSummit.com. Seats are extremely limited as this is a very special small group event www.exponentialsuccesssummit.com. Let's back up a little bit in terms of your story. How'd you get on mm -hmm. stage at six? That's, you know, uh, again, a, a remarkable set of circumstances conspired to get me there. Um, my father was a teacher in our school division. I taught middle school math and science. Very, very well-respected um, community leader. He was an active 2030, um, was very outgoing, um, and very publicly liked. And so when I started school, you know, everybody kind of knew who I was because I was Clayton Foley's son. And I had an outgoing personality. I was always that kid who, when the relatives would come over for Christmas or Easter or, you know, like family occasions, I was always trying to put on a show. So I, I remember getting a magic kit when I was like three years old and showing people, you know, and making the little foam rabbit disappear and coins through hands and all kinds of fun things. And so my grade one uh, school teacher, Miss Judy Nielsen, who I'm still in contact with today and gets an acknowledgement in my book because she's a fabulous human being. <laughs> um, 
put me on stage as Joseph in our Christmas pageant, our, our uh, Christmas play. And my best friend, Lisa, got to play Mary. And my dad and my mom came and saw it. And it was the first time that I ever got uh, applause. It was the first time I'd ever heard an audience laugh at something that I was going to do. And at six years old, I was too young to realize that I'm supposed to be terrified of being on stage. And so for me, stage was uh, just this beautiful, fun place where people rewarded you with one of the best gifts that you can ever get. And that is a standing ovation. Those things are powerful and they feel incredible. And I was hooked. And uh, literally two months later, almost to the day, my father passed away in a um, single vehicle, motor vehicle accident. And being as young as I was, it was really hard for me to process the finality of death, what that meant, um, that my father was never coming back. Like all of those things are really foreign concepts when you're six. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really outwardly grieve. And I, I, again, I don't know if it was out of concern or, uh, or if it was just because my mom needed something to do so that she something for me to do so that she could grieve, and, you know, keep the kids occupied. But um, Judy had reached out to her and said, listen, he actually really does have a gift and a talent for this. And so mom didn't know really what to do. And then my uncle, who is a perennial bachelor, which means that he doesn't cook for himself and always goes out for food, um, worked for the city. And our main fine arts complex was literally right across the street from City Hall. Just It had just been built at that time. And he was out for lunch. And um, I can't remember if it was the casting director or the director or the producer of one of the plays was complaining um, very loudly to her associate, how hard is it to find a, a small boy to play Tiny Tim? Wow. And my uncle leaned in. He said, well, how small is small? And she goes, well, you know, we need somebody who's like six to 10, but they have to look like they're five to eight. He goes, well, my nephew is tiny. <laughs> he's six. He's almost seven. And uh, he, you know, he, he looks like he's four. And she goes, that might do. Bring him in. And she gave my uncle her card. My uncle reached out to my mom and said, this might be a thing that Tyler could do. And I got to go and, and audition for it and get the part. Um, and again, I don't, and I've learned this lesson multiple times over the course of my life. Talent does not get you the job. <laughs> Talent gets you the opportunity to audition. Um, everything else gets you the job, you know, right height, right color, right eye color, hair color, uh, wardrobe circumstances, who knows what. I remember once getting a, a, a job for a MTV TV series. And uh, in between takes, I was sitting down, the director was beside me. And he goes, do you know why I cast you? And I was like, no, I have no idea. Because it was just a bit part, just like literally a line. I think the line was, you can sit with us. <laughs> and I was like, no, tell me. He goes, I liked your lips. 
Can you That's imagine awesome. he probably auditioned 20 other guys for this role? He liked my lips. Yeah, you like, have you have you don't really have control over that. <laughs> no, that had nothing to do with anything, right? And so it, it you know, it's nice for me to to know and and for anybody who's in any kind of performance art, your talent gets you the audition. If you didn't have talent, you wouldn't you wouldn't have representation. You wouldn't constantly get the the opportunity to audition for these shows. Well, I so think, if you th- I think that's a key point. Like your uncle wouldn't have put you up in front of uh the <laughs> this woman at the community center if he didn't like he was your representation at the time yeah right so if he yeah. didn't believe in you right so you had talent and then you had representation and i mean people could say yeah yeah it's all in who you know it's like well you've got to show up first and you've then, got to show up first right yeah. that's by the way just for those listening and not on youtube not visually uh, Tyler does have nice lips. Okay, so <laughs> we had to get that out of the way. That's Thank right. you for validating what I was always questioning in Dr. Gotcha. P because there you go. You know. <laughs> but and and so yeah, so I got I got this opportunity to go forward and it, it is literally, you know, been my vocation for coming up four decades. Well, you, you do work with uh, business leaders now as well, mm-hmm. and you help them make their points. Um, one of the things, you know, we talked about earlier was, um, was the old styles that we've had to overcome. Mm-hmm. And um, I forget, one of the great speakers was, you don't have to tell a joke uh you don't have to tell a joke to be a good speaker um no you don't have to tell a joke to be a speaker but you have to tell a joke to be a great speaker something like that yeah, yeah. And, and 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 it's like well do you like do you really have to open with a joke like that no you don't have to open with a joke <laughs> um and in fact you don't need to have jokes to be funny Right. I think um, and I've heard a couple of different people say it. I remember I know Jerry Robert has said it. Um, Colin Sprake, I know I've heard say it. Brian Tracy, I've heard say it. So there are there it is definitely a mentality that's out there. What I have found is that um, everybody has a natural humor about them but jokes don't always land. Right. And so there are multiple ways of inserting humor into a presentation. And I think humor is important because a lot of times, especially if your story is heavy or, or dark, um, again, your audience is a sacred gift and you need to leave them better than you found them. And if you hit them with only the heavy and the sad without giving them that moment of levity to let them know that it's okay and release the tension, you can oftentimes do more harm than good. And so I think finding humor is important, but telling jokes is not critical. There are many ways of inserting humor into your talk. Uh, Even if it's just finding like an internet meme or a good Calvin and Hobbes 
cartoon or a far side cartoon mm. and posting it up to point it out. Um, it can be an effective way of easing that tension. Uh, one of the best examples of it that I've ever seen, my wife loves RuPaul's Drag Race. And she just, she, she, we watch it. And so because she watches it, I have to watch it. And I'd watch it anyways, because I, I think um, it's one of the best performance arts out there. I think uh, stand-up comedian is the hardest performing performance art. And then drag queen, I think in that order, is the the two hardest, uh, and I would put stand up comedian above drag performance because you have one job as a stand up comedian, and everybody knows what it is. As a public speaker, people don't know what I'm going to say, and they don't know what the response or reaction is supposed to be. But if I was a comedian, they don't know what I'm going to say, but they know that I better be laughing every like two to three seconds. And if they're not, then I'm not doing my job. So I think that's the hardest. But we were watching um, Drag Queen uh, or Drag Race. And there was this queen on and she was talking about how she had a very uh, rough life. She looked very, very young. I think she was in her mid 30s, but she looked like she was probably 12 or 14. And the, and the queens in the room were all like, what's going on with this person? And um, RuPaul was interviewing her and she said, well, I actually had a lot of uh, medical issues and, you know, I've had uh, a, adrenal failure and I've had kidney failure. And she said, and I have this thing that it actually, um, you know, I get crystals in my eyes, but of course I would, because I'm a drag queen. Like how glamorous is that? Right. And, and just, and, and it, it's that point, right. You're telling something humor, but you, you are telling something heavy, but you find the humor in it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's important. And I think that shows growth too. Uh, one of the th things that I've learned as a speaker is you never speak from the wounds. You speak about the scars. Mm -hmm. If the wounds are open, they're still festering. You haven't healed from it. So you haven't learned from it. But if you speak from the scars, those have, those have healed over. You've learned the lesson and can now speak from a point of strength as opposed to uh, vulnerability. You can still be vulnerable in the way you present it, but you're not, it's still not open and festering. And I, I think that. that's critical yeah. is when we explore our stories, we want to make sure that we have learned the lesson before we speak about it, <laughs> because otherwise we're not the sage and mentor at that point. We're still the student and the Padawan and the, and the hero. I love that. Don't speak from the wound, speak about the scars. Let me go back to business leadership for a second, because I've seen mm -hmm. some business leaders who fall into the trap of wanting to be liked mm. and right. So wanting to be liked means, um, I'm going to be funny. I'm going to mm. be jolly. I'm going to tell you the worst news ever with a smile on my face. And you're going to think that I'm great, even though you've just heard some really bad news. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So I would rather be respected than liked. And I think when you can make that your focus and your goal, you will be, you will be liked for the right reasons. And yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I've, I've, I've seen that speech and not only that, it, it's, it's a poorly timed joke yes. delivered in what I call the Toastmasters cadence. Yes. And it, it never goes well. <laughs> uh, and I think, uh, for most leaders, I think there's this um, 
misperception and false concept that vulnerability is equivalent to weakness. Hmm. And some of the best leaders I have ever seen have the ability to take on the weight and the concerns of their people and express to them how they feel, right? Um, this They can say, you know, I'm terrified of this event because this is what the ripple of it is going to be. This is how it affects me personally. And, and taking that, taking that mantle on them, that is, that's real mm-hmm. leadership, right? Stepping in front of your people. Well, I think it also, and doing shepherding that, them. It, it shepherding is a great word. I think it, uh, I think it honors them. I think mm-hmm. that what it does is when a leader does that, it speaks to his or her values. And, you know, in my work in with leaders, starting with values, most people, the like the mistakes that are made by leaders is that they don't let others know what they value. Um, they assume that others know what they value. <laughs> or they've put values up on a mission statement that aren't actually aligned with their actual values. Right. Because they think it's good PR or press or it, it looks good. Yep. Misaligned. I, right. Right. I, I, I mean, as a, I'm not just a handsome face, well-known actor and public speaker. <laughs> I use my powers for good and, and I am a safety consultant. <laughs> and uh, when I'm working with my clients, that's usually one of the first things that I ask them. Well, I had one client whose ultimate value was money. And I, and I mean, like we, I did the hierarchy with them, like family. No, I was working in a family run business. And so they made this big statement about how family was their priority and everybody in, in was, was family and was treated like family. And that worked when they were just 12 people, but they had this rapid expansion and growth where they went from 12 to a hundred to 150. And the reality was family was not the value. Connection was not the value. Money was what this CEO valued. He's like, well, I can't tell people that. Like, Why not? Why can't you say that you, that you, that your value is money? First of all, you'll attract the people whose value is money. They want to earn the money. They will work for the money. That is what motivates them because it's what motivates you. And so all of your decisions are based on this motivation. And if you're saying that it's family, you're, 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 you're disappointing everybody, yourself included. That's fabulous. That's absolutely right. Right. And then, so once we got him in aligned with it, he was like, well, listen, the reason I'm doing this is money. People respected him. They're like, oh no, I get it. You know? And he's like, and, and so I was like, because we had to tie it back to safety. I'm like, so why is safety important to you? Well, because people get hurt, then they're, they're off. I'm having to pay compensation. Um, I'm having to retrain somebody to do it for them. And then, you know, just because money was his high value didn't make him Ebenezer Scrooge. He genuinely cared. Like he did, family was a priority. 
in the hierarchy. It just wasn't the priority. It was about four. <laughs> you know, That's it was great. still a priority. And his people were important to him. I was like, say it that way. Be honest. You know, yeah. I am concerned for you. I'm concerned for you because money is a value to me. And I see that when you're not working, workers comp is only going to pay you X amount of dollars. I'm going to pay you Z. Z is higher than X. And I want you to be earning this. And so it's a concern to me because I'm losing money if you're not working. You're losing money if you're not working. We need you to work, which means we need you to work safely. And I promise you in following this process, it's not costing me money. It's saving me money because in the end, there will be fewer mistakes. There will be fewer. You won't have to be out of town as often. You will get to be with your family because we're not having to go out and do warranty work. We're doing it the right way the first time. And so he laid it all out and then people were like, yes. And then all of a sudden his incidents went down. His employee retention went up. He made more money. <laughs> and all we had to do was, was be honest with what his values and his priorities were. So there are two things that I want to point out right, right now with this. One, um, you were speaking as Sage, looking at a process, process, as they say in mm-hmm. Calgary, um, <laughs> uh, and looking at... A, an individual's growth through a pain point. So that's awesome. And then the fact that there was this pain point of uh, misaligned values, I think that's huge. Um, that when you actually state what your values are, you become much more believable. Um, prosperity is, is, I have 11 values in my business and prosperity is one of them. Um, and, and and the line that it starts with like prosperity is identified. And then I have a paragraph, like three sentences that identify mm-hmm. it, right? Money must flow and a positive cash flow is a fundamental necessity for business growth. It's mm-hmm. like, how hard is that? Right. It's like, yeah. I can value prosperity. Um, and it's okay to talk about money. I think that that's, mm-hmm. that's part of it too. So, you know, for me, um, my message, the message of my brand expands its reach because, because of profitability and prosperity. Yeah. Um, to say that without apology is huge, right? So yes. when we step into our values, I, I love that. I'm, I'm delighted that like we've come to be able to say this is the, the power of the story permeates all of our lives. I love that we've come at the end of our, at the end of our uh, interview time to be able to tie it to um, values alignment. And so, well, and again, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. You can't be authentic. You can't reach your people if you don't know who you are. And if you're not willing to come out and say it unabashedly and unashamedly, yeah. you need to say, this is, this is who I am. Perfect. Um, was there anything that you wished I had asked you or any kind of final, like, you know, we got into stories and then it was like, wow, it's the end of our, our interview time. What the heck? Like all of a sudden. So is there anything that you, uh, you know, that you were hoping I would ask or that you um, like wanted to make sure that that came out of you for our audience? Well, I think what's important for your audience to know is that you do have a story. 
and you never know who needs to hear it until you tell it. Hmm. The people who are the ones to speak first are the ones who are viewed as leaders. If you want to be a leader in your space, you need to tell your story. And if you will indulge me on two minutes, because I do know that we are near the end of our time, but as Les Brown had said, you never make a point without a story and you never tell a story without a point. I think this deserves a story. Please. When I say you never know who needs to hear your story until you tell it, I had the privilege of speaking at an event called Life by Design. And it was a two and a half day conference. I was the second last speaker to speak at that event. The last speaker um, did a talk called the 10 minute time machine. Now, what you need to know about the speaker is that uh, in his day job, he sells life insurance. Uh, prior to that, he was a tech manager for a, um, a real estate firm, uh, like a, a real estate body, governing body. But he struggled for a while with addiction and mental health issues and had spent the better part of a decade convincing himself that uh, his now ex-wife and estranged children would be better off in this world if he was not in this world. And he had uh, become very obsessed with finding the perfect combination of alcohol and pills that would end his life in a way accidental enough that his children would get uh, a life insurance payout. And the 10-minute time machine talk discussed the day that he got it right, which also happened to be the first time in almost three years where he had faked sobriety at a family function enough that his now ex-wife trusted him enough to take the children home with him because she and her new partner just needed a break and needed time. And so he had this routine where he would, you know, sleep most of the day, get up in the evening, go to 7-Eleven, get a Slurpee and a Rice Krispie Square, and then proceed to mix various pills that he would get from pharmacists who didn't ask a lot of questions and alcohol readily available from any liquor store and try to find that right combination to kind of ease him off into oblivion. And this day that he got the children, he then decided, he, you know, going to change the routine. But then he went to bed, woke up, and as most people who get into habitual things do, forgot that the kids were there, got into his routine, kind of remembered that the kids might be there, but then figured, no, that's got to be a hallucination caused by this combination of alcohol and pills until he started to feel himself slip. And in the moment that he felt himself slip, that this point it was like six or seven in the morning and his son had gotten up hungry and wanting breakfast and he couldn't, he couldn't talk. And he felt himself fading. And the last thing that he could remember saying was help. And in his mind, he's screaming, it can't be now, this can't be it, it can't happen while the kids are here. 
And that was the thing that sparked his will and his need to live. And so he calls it the 10 minute time machine because if he could go back in time and change anything, would he? And his answer is no. Because he'd thought he'd reached rock bottom before, but he hadn't. That was his rock bottom. But he needed to know that his children needed him there as opposed to this false belief that he had told himself this story for a long time that they didn't. And it was in this understanding that he, he managed to change his life. You know, he, he finally, because he pretended to go to rehab before twice, didn't work. But now he actually went. Now he had a reason. He had a commitment. He had a deep-rooted want to do this. So he tells this story. And remember, this is a very difficult thing for him to come forward and say because his vocation is selling life insurance Mm -hmm. now. Um, Wasn't at the time, but it was now. And so for a life insurance salesman to say, I struggle with mental health and tried to kill myself, probably not the best messaging for his business. But he did it and he said it anyways. In the audience that day was a woman who had been gifted the ticket by her friend and out of politeness agreed to go knowing full well that on the Monday morning after the event, she was going to hike up to her favorite lookout spot that in the mountains that overlooked the lake very near to where this event was being held. She was going to take her rifle that she had just recently purchased had just recently cleaned. She was going to put one round in the chamber and she was going to point it at herself and end her life. But then she heard the 10 minute time machine. And she recognized in that story herself because the speaker, when he told it, was unbelievably vulnerable and found the humor in it. Like you, here's the thing. It was a very dark subject, but you laughed. Like he was talking, when he talks about the Rice Krispie Square, it was the only thing that he could stomach. Plus, you know, it made his abs look good. I mean, you, you couldn't help but laugh, right? And he, he just, he was so authentic in the sharing and the details mattered. And she identified with the details. So she came to the uh, promoter and she says, listen, this is where I'm at. I'm struggling with, with these issues and I, I need help. And so she got the help. And a year later, she came back to the promoter and said, listen, I've had this massive growth. I've had these massive transitions and understanding of who I am. I would like to tell my story if that's okay. And the promoter said, absolutely, come tell it. Now, she'd never public spoke before ever, but she got up, she found the strength to do it in the audience. That year, there were three people who were going through the same thing, who were thinking Mm -hmm. the same thing, who reached out to her and said, listen, I need help. So in one person being brave, he changed one person's life. That person being brave changed three people's lives, literally saved lives. Mm -hmm. So when I say you don't know who needs to hear your story until you tell it, it could very literally change and or save somebody's life who needs to hear that they're not alone, that somebody else in the world has experienced something similar. And that is the power of story. And that is why you need to share yours. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and, uh, you know, ripple effects are huge. You never know. You never know who's, whose life you're going to touch. Uh, even if it's, you know, less significant than, oh, I was going to take my life, but then I, you know, 
I, I got this revelation that told me not to and showed me why. Um, it doesn't have to be that earth shattering. It can be something as simple as I learned this, I grew from this. And, and in that growth and in your sharing that growth, you are changing lives. And that may ultimately save a life. You never know, right? So I, I I'm a huge fan. That's awesome. Uh Tyler, you want you want people to go to endlessstages.com. Is that right? Yeah, they can go to endlessstages.com or they can get to the same place through my website, which is SeanTylerFoley.com. And Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y. But I find endless stages is the easier one to remember. Um, but I would ask your audience if they are enjoying what you put together, Dr. Wayne, if, uh, you know, one sharp sword is a, uh, a podcast that they're coming back to regularly, that they're enjoying the content that you're putting together before they come to my website, uh, because they can probably get to it from the show notes. They're already on your platform. They're already listening to you. And if they haven't yet done it, I would ask that they give you a five-star review and be specific, like actually give a detailed review. What was one of your favorite episodes? What are some of your favorite takeaways? Have you read The Significance Factor? How did you get to this show? Like, how did you find out about Dr. P? And if you can do that favor for me, because that helps everybody, that helps you get better content because Wayne will know what it is that you are enjoying and bring more of that to you. So it helps you, helps Dr. Wayne because now he's got some five-star reviews that always bumps us up in the algorithm. That makes it uh, a more huge show, which allows him to get some bigger, better guests. It helps me because now it raises the profile of the platform and now my episode might get better listenership. So if as a thank you to you for helping all of us in this community, if you can give a five-star review, if you come to Endless Stages, either through my website or through the Endless Stages landing page, as a thank you, I will give you a free PDF download of my book, which is regularly $17.95 in bookstores, but you'll get the free PDF version of it. I will also give you access to my Drop the Mic speaker training program, which is a self-directed online learning. And uh, we will get you into our private Facebook group called Endless Stages where I go live every Tuesday at noon Pacific, three Eastern time, and give some form of instruction based on the feedback that we're getting from the group that week. So whatever the hot topic happens to be, that is what I will instruct on. So you have direct input on your learning. And I try to bring my four decades of experience to the table each and every week. So if they're willing to do that, that is my gift to them, Dr. P. But no five-star review, no gifts for you. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, thank you. That's really great. That's a that's a win-win-win, right? So that's mm -hmm. that's fabulous. Please, um, I have nothing to add to that. What Sean said, do that, <laughs> Tyler. You go by yeah. How did we have to ask just to really briefly? Uh, the two most popular names in 1979 were Sean. And Tyler, my mom and dad couldn't decide which one they wanted. So they named me Sean Tyler. Like it's hyphenated like Jean-Luc, but it's not hyphenated because it's like Jean-Luc. And, uh, but if you tell people that your name is Sean Tyler, they will call you Sean, which is not my name. 
it's Sean Tyler. And then to further confuse it in my grade, in my kindergarten class, uh, there were seven Sean's and one Tyler. So I became the second Tyler and let the six other Sean's fight it out amongst themselves. And none of them spelled it the same. We had S-E-A-N, S-H-A-U-N, S-H-A-W-N, a really super Gaelic spelling that looked like Shehabavivihen that was actually pronounced John. And uh, so I just, I, I've gone by Tyler amongst my friends uh, for a very long time. And since you and I are friends, Dr. P, Tyler with you and me. Tyler it is. That's awesome. All right. Well, <clears throat> SeanTylerFoley.com. Tyler, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. It's uh, yeah, it's great getting to know you that m- much more. It's great to have you here. I, uh, I really do appreciate all you brought. And, um, and I just, I wanted to say thank you. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Very good. All righty. Well, uh, amazing. More amazing stuff. This is One Sharp Sword which is better than a thousand dull knives. One sharp sword cutting through to what matters most. I am your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach. Today's guest was Tyler Foley. Listen in for more. Uh, Hit Tyler's website and we'll see you here next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. 